Brian Stanton here with ASAP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Catherine Hawk, somebody we've had on the program in the past and um, somebody that's helped um, multiple occasions uh, discussing the opioid epidemic, uh, medication-assisted treatment. Today we're actually going to talk about overdoses themselves, so kind of getting back to the basics, uh, but some uh, research and, and some things that she is looking into, uh, Dr. Hawk as a physician through Yale Medicine. And um, let's just dive right into it. So, Dr. Hawk, thanks for returning with us with The Frontline. Thanks so much for having me. So, tell us a little bit about um, overdoses and uh, where we are in the work that you're doing. So, as you know, over the past several years, we've continued to see a rise of of, uh, drug-related overdoses and specifically opioid-related overdoses. And that's something that we've seen in our emergency departments every, every day. Um, one of the things that, as someone who um, spends a lot of time thinking about how we can link people to treatment and how we can think about how to keep people as healthy as we can help them, um, one of the things I was specifically interested in is what we can do sort of in the ED space with patients that we see following a non-fatal opioid overdose. Specifically was interested in if there are strategies that we can use to make engagement more likely, whether in harm reduction services or linkage to treatment. And was very interested in specifically what people thought they needed. So with that in mind, I mean, I think most of us have experienced the opioid-based overdose. The patient who gets the Narcan comes in nauseated, agitated, a little sweaty, all that sort of thing. What are some of the things that you uncovered with regard to, or or things that 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 you found out with regard to the overdoses and the patient perspective? First off, um, the thing that kind of came out in my clinical practice, and this is not rocket science, but I think sort of one of the most fundamental things about taking care of people after overdose is a sense of, of compassion and approaching them with sort of a non-judgmental um, approach. One of the things that we've heard from talking to individuals and from patients is they feel stigmatized in the emergency department. They feel like you know people are judging them. They're often very embarrassed about sort of what, what's re- what has recently happened, about having an overdose. And so just even approaching people, you know, right out of the gate with, I'm sorry that this happened today. I would like to help you. You know, I understand that you're uncomfortable. You know, how can we work together to keep you safe today and keep you here? And, you know, what can I do to make you more comfortable right now? In our ED, we have turkey sandwiches. In other EDs, it's different things. But even just that sort of basic human kindness, I think, is one of the most important things for connecting with people, particularly this patient population. I think I need to make a correction. Every emergency department has the turkey sandwich. Okay. <laughs> that is the only uh, that is the only universal aspect of emergency medicine is that turkey sandwich, the uh, white bread, dry turkey. Yes, mayonnaise on the side. <laughs> yes, mayonnaise on the side box. That is universal emergency medicine. And um, actually, I was wondering about you know getting there, getting um, that should be something that's sponsored or, or potentially look into because it is the only thing that's across the board, every, every place across the United States. I need my turkey sandwich. So with that in mind, what are some of the things that our physicians, our APPs need to think about with regard? You mentioned some of these thoughts that, yeah, this situation for the patients sucks, and, and we understand uh, a lot of that and demonstrating some compassion, understanding, some empathy. What are some of the things from a from the tips from our standpoint of approaching this sort of thing? Because it can be very frustrating from the physician APP standpoint. It's like, oh, another another overdose or, or something else and agitated and, 
and um, you know, and, and folks that are very uncomfortable and want to get out of the emergency department. You know, it's just one more thing on top, and that's getting into some of the uh, stigma uh, standpoints. But some things that the physicians and APPs can keep in mind as they walk into the room of somebody who has just been um, revived from an opioid overdose. As I mentioned, I had all kinds of ideas about what I thought people need. I thought people needed naloxone. I thought people need a referral to treatment um, to start buprenorphine and refer to treatment if that's something they were they were willing to do. But it occurred to me that we didn't actually have a lot of knowledge about what patients really wanted. And so I applied about a year and a half ago to the Emergency Medicine Foundation for a pilot grant to do qualitative interviews with people in the ED after overdose mm-hmm. to really get a sense of you know what it is that you know what are their perceived needs and what do they think is important. And so that sort of overview of the research, so I did qualitative interviews with 24 people um, in the emergency department following an opioid overdose. This was sort of in the hour while they're kind of in the ED waiting for disposition. And spent, there were short interviews, maybe 15 minutes, and had an interview guide, and we focused really on five domains. One was sort of around overdose knowledge. One was around sort of prior treatment experiences, goals, and sort of perceive what they thought you know, the right role for the emergency department was. And so some of the things that I found were not, you know, necessarily surprising in the sense that many of the patients that I saw had, about half the people I enrolled had sort of one of those risk factors that we think about when we think about a risk factor for overdose. They had either used alcohol with a benzodiazepine or other sedative, had recently been released from uh, an uh, abstinence-based inpatient treatment facility or jail or incarceration, those were sort of the main overdose risk factors that we saw with this patient population. But when, you know, when we asked people, you know, what it is that is most important to you, and what do you think that you need? Several people that talked about needing a job. I need a place to live. I can't really think about engaging in treatment if I'm living living in a place where you know there's active ongoing drug use, and I don't want to be homeless, and so I'm going to stay, you know, in this house with my family with active ongoing drug use, and so. That one of the things that that really sort of shaped for me was kind of thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of need. You know, I think that when I'm talking to people about starting medication for treatment or starting buprenorphine, you know, I think that's a little bit higher up in the triangle than the very basic need of like food, water, shelter, safety. And so, you know, not that treatment isn't related to meeting those needs, but one of the things that I definitely learned was that, you know, when we talk to people, if I'm coming at them from you know, you should do treatment because it, you know, will help with illicit drug use. It'll help with, you know, reduced HIV transmission and hepatitis C transmission. There are all kinds of, you know, large-scale benefits. But for the individual, the thing that they care most about that day, for many of the people I talked to, was, you know, very basic fundamental needs. And that gets to a lot of that, some of the things we don't think about, and really a lot of times why we have return visits, utilization in the emergency department, is understanding that many of the needs are more than science. I mean, listening to you talk, a lot of it was your, your thoughts are science-based. This is what you need, recovery, future safety from overdose, things like that. But to the patient, you know, there's looking at those other confounders uh, because opioid uh, overdose abuse, really any abuse doesn't, doesn't exist in isolation. And there's a lot of things that go into it. And just as a patient I had last week, had been sober for quite some time, but re-entered that environment where there was a lot of abuse and and risk and ended up uh, having an overdose. So understanding those types of things can be huge. And so, you know, you mentioned short interview, but, you know, 15 minutes. But for us, you know, for most ER docs, 15 minutes is still 
relatively in, in eternity. So what are the, your recommendation? And I know you're, you're still kind of working through uh, a lot of this, uh, this data and information and how you're going to write things up. What are your recommendations in terms of, you know, things that the emergency physician needs to really inquire about, kind of that, that hard-hitting hot item that we can check into or ask about or kind of engage in order to improve that success at preventing overdose and, and encouraging recovery? So other things that, that came out of the data was many of the patients actually did have a fairly good working knowledge of, of overdose prevention strategies, but some did not. And so there certainly were opportunities for to deliver overdose prevention education. You know, people expressed sort of a great gratitude for the existence of naloxone and thought that, you know, the ED was certainly an appropriate place to, to discuss giving out naloxone. Many of the patients we talked to talked about the fact that, you know, if you're not ready, we're not going to, you know, the ED is not going to get them sort of ready, but that it is a really important point that when people are ready to make it really, really, really easy to get linked into treatment. And so that's, you know, one of the things that, as you know, we've spent a lot of time doing is trying to figure out how, you know, in our ED and sort of other, ED, you know, other EDs across the country, how when we see people at sort of this vulnerable point who are ready to you know, either start treatment or try to engage in healthier behaviors, whether it's getting, you know, plugged into harm reduction services or other things, just trying to make sure that we are able to have these conversations with patients in a non-judgmental, patient-centered way, and that we're able to sort of provide resources around how to keep people healthy. And if they are ready and willing to start medication, you know, we have lots of evidence around buprenorphine improving outcomes for patients. We know we have, as you know, Dr. D'Onofrio's study, we have data from the emergency department that it greatly enhances the likelihood that someone will be engaged in treatment at 30 days. And if people are ready for treatment, we know that treatment works. Well, as physicians and other staff in the emergency department, you know, being judgmental or coming at them in a, in a uh, judgmental, aggressive manner is, is not going to be helpful. You know, these, these folks have almost died today. So you coming in there and, and driving that point home is not going to change that, it just potentially alienate that patient uh, to the point that return to that situation. I mean, that's honestly one of the recurring themes of addiction and overdoses, that isolation back to that environment and getting almost pushed back to that environment by those around us instead of being somebody who tries to understand. One of my favorite things that I've always done is sat down with my overdose patients or addiction patients. Uh, doesn't even have to be overdose, but you know, even abscesses, things like that, and just talk with them about how they got to where they are and then kind of, you know, sit down and, and, and just chat about where the next steps are going to be and how to get to that point of recovery and sobriety. So that was actually one of the things that I haven't figured out if I'm going to write about this, but I certainly felt it was a really interesting experience in the sense that doing these interviews, I mean, people were just so grateful to be, have an opportunity to talk about their story, you know, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, I did not expect for people to be so, you know, willing to share their experiences and and talk about the fact that they felt really sort of alienated and, and judged in the past and just the opportunity of, you know, tell me how you got here today is something that people really felt empowered in their ability to share their story. And that's one of the simple things we can do because addiction naturally is that isolation and, and kind of builds on itself over time, that addiction, the rewiring and all that stuff just kind of builds on itself to isolate the person to kind of pull them back in. I mean, if you've read a lot of the books, whether it's Dreamland, whether it's No Easy Day, whether it's whatever uh, books that may be out there, just understanding that really one of the, the powers of addiction is pulling people into that isolation, which makes them feel like that's kind of the only option. And we may have that 
and there's a lot, a lot of research out there, whether it's with alcohol or, or drugs or whatever it may be in that emergency department, we have that ability to do that quick intervention and do that quick discussion, uh, engaging the patient that may change the course of their life forever in terms of giving them that little grain of hope that they need to kind of take that next step. And one of the conversations that we had is that emergency medicine was kind of this weird landing spot for a lot of addiction uh, and overdose-related issues, but really becoming that kind of the understanding that it's really the doorway to a lot of opportunity because a lot of that acute situational issues end up in that emergency department. And um, I know you've done a ton with the bridge clinics and the bridging and the medication-assisted treatment and uh, the initiation of recovery in the emergency department. Where do you see that role of emergency medicine in terms of the solution to where we are right now with the opioid epidemic? One of the things that has just been so rewarding is to see, you know, over the last couple of years to see emergency physicians really embrace the fact that we have an opportunity to Mm -hmm. help improve people's lives in this way. And so I think the biggest sort of hurdles initially were around professional identity and what people thought their job was, you know, and, and I think seeing so many young people in their emergency departments with, you know, with overdoses. Even with, you know, this sort of new, there's a new manuscript that came out a couple of weeks ago, um, Scott Weiner out of out of Boston, essentially, you know, that shows that one, that essentially a, it's a 5% one-year mortality rate. If you're seen in an emergency department with a non-fatal overdose, this is using a linked data set out of Massachusetts, your sort of, your one-year mortality is 5%, and it's 1% in 30 days. And so when you look at that compared to other medical conditions we treat in the emergency department, uh, there was a really nice thing on, on Twitter that actually Kit Delgado out of Penn did, but, you know, overlaid, you know, this large data, data set in Southern California on basically heart scores and sort of 30-day outcomes and heart scores mortality versus, you know, non-fatal overdose. And I think it was the low-risk heart score 30-day mortality, of, you know, either acute MI or death at 30 mm-hmm. days was, I think, 0.09 uh, versus 1%. I mean, it's, it's really staggering when we think about our ability to affect outcomes. Well, I mean, just kind of putting that, drive the point home that one in 20 of those people that you see in front of you are going to be dead within, by that same time next year is, yeah. is huge. And you may have that opportunity in the emergency department at that point to kind of change that course and, and divert that course just with a little bit of time and putting in programs for initiation of management and treatment and recovery and then referrals to the appropriate setting to keep that going. Any other messages that you may have for the folks out there and once they see the next shift when they come in and uh, they have that overdose come into the emergency department, that patient is sitting there, uh, that young man or woman uh, sitting in front of them in that uncomfortable situation of acute withdrawal and wondering how the hell things happened the way they did, how they got to where they are, and now they're sitting in front of you. Well, I'd like to put in a plug. So um, ASEP, the um, Equal Network, they have an opioid initiative that is a structured QI project and learning collaborative for sort of medical departments or medical directors and emergency departments to participate in. It also has this huge sort of trove of resources around how to take care of patients with opioid use disorder and around prescribing. And so sort of everything that you could need around thinking about how to start a program for ED-initiated buprenorphine, overdose prevention, there's a link to uh, the state of New York City actually just put out this really amazing sort of resource around providing care for patients after opioid overdose. There are lots and lots of resources on this website. And you can certainly go to it during a shift. I would encourage you to sort of peruse the, the website when you have some downtime, not necessarily when you're taking care of a patient that second, um, although there are resources that can guide you sort of 
through how to do that. But you know, there are resources available. You don't have to reinvent the wheel if you're trying to get a program up and running. Um, if you're looking for tools for how to engage patients, we have on the Yale ED buprenorphine website, we have sort of tips and tricks around motivational interviewing to enhance patients' motivation to you know, either uh, engage in treatment or you know, engage in overdose prevention practices. And so there are resources out there and available, and I encourage folks to check those out. Yeah, I do love the EQUAL site. Uh, it's been steadily building over the last few years and continues to add to that. Um, and it's to, it's to the size now that it probably needs to be. We probably need a little bit of design stuff to, to help make it easier because there's so much data now and so much information, so much education on that site. But it is a, a great place to uh, go and kind of get through the nuts and bolts of where folks have gone, the great ideas people have in terms of pain management, uh, evidence-based pain management, uh, addiction, uh, prevention, and then as well as uh, what you're really focused on is is that uh, recovery, that intervention recovery standpoint uh, through the emergency department. So some great resources there. Actually, I have turned, uh, uh, you know, being charged with uh, state of Kentucky, you know, just basically turned over the equal site and said, here you go, here's everything else. So thanks for that work and everything you guys have done because it made it easy uh, for us to uh, to not reinvent the wheel when it comes to uh, these all these resources and things and education that we have. How can folks get in touch with you if they have uh, any more questions, thoughts, or, or interest in the um, opioid and, and recovery aspect? Sure. Uh, so um, email is, is easy. It's just my name. Uh, so it's katherine.hawk at yale.edu. I am also on Twitter at Catherine underscore Hawk. Uh, although I'm still understanding the Twitter universe, I'm better than uh, we, I was last time we talked. <laughs> so those are the, really the best ways to reach me. Now, it is, it is easy unless you try to spell Catherine the traditional Catherine way. Um, it's K-A-T-H-R-Y-N dot Hawk, H-A-W-K at Yale dot E-D-U. And actually pretty easy to find if you, if you Google her uh, online with, with opioid recovery, Yale. Um, she comes up uh, pretty easily. And you can even uh, do the old-fashioned uh, fax the clinic kind of thing. <laughs> I always find that interesting. Yale loves to put uh, the clinic fax machine uh, as part of your contact well, I information. Have, I have neither a clinic or a fax machine. So I have no well, you've got one on their website. <laughs> I have no idea where that goes. <laughs> we, should, we should try it out. Somebody fax uh, Catherine's Clinic, 203-785-4580, and we'll see where that ends up. Um, so that way, uh, Dr. Hawk can uh, know where her fax machine is. Uh, as for me, you can contact me, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com. I do not have a fax machine, but I do have Facebook uh, with ASAP Frontline and at Everyday Med on Twitter. And until next time, I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline. <laughs>